when I was just about ready to go off to seminary from St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, I was standing at the door with Father Leslie Wilder, the rector, at the end of the 11 o'clock liturgy, and a woman came out and said to him, Father Wilder, don't you think saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to Rome? (laughs) And he said, no, I think saying the Hail Mary is getting dangerously close to the gospel according to St. Luke. (laughs) I mention this because uh, we're introduced to a key figure in the divine economy today, Mary, Some of you may notice that at the Eucharistic prayer, when I uh, uh, am presiding at the Eucharist, when it comes to the place where Mary's name is invoked, I say, Mary the God-bearer. And the reason I do that instead of the ever-blessed Virgin Mary is because that's what it says in the Creed. That's what the Eastern Orthodox Church has always said about Mary. She is the God-bearer. And this will become important in a moment when we speak about uh, Mary's virginity. But what I want to do in my sermon this morning is to say a word to you about uh, the reading from Micah, because it's rarely read in the lectionary, just like last week from Zephaniah. In fact, we repeated Zephaniah today, and we're reading now from Micah. And the reading from Micah is an important reading for a couple of reasons. Um, It introduces us to Micah, who was just like Zephaniah. So if you wanted a prophet that made Jeremiah look like amateur night, in terms of the blue picture, Micah was another one. Micah exercised his prophetic ministry. He was from a small town in the ancient Near East called Morseth. And he exercised his public prophetic ministry from 748 B.C. to 648 B.C. So that's about 100 years before the Babylonian exile. And biblical scholars have studied the book of the prophet Micah and have determined through the use of the tools that are available to us that it has three parts and three distinct authors or groups of authors. Micah, which is the first, a school of Micah, which is the second, and another group, a prophetic school that is in Jerusalem after the exile ended, what we call post-exilic, when they now begin to rebuild the temple. And this is the reading that we hear from today, from this section, because it is full of hope. And the reason the early church appropriated this text and used it was for two reasons. The first was to remind everyone that the coming of the Savior is going to involve the conclusion of exile It is going to place before the people the importance of restoration, freedom from the feeling of alienation and being outcasts. And now God's healing purposes are going to be made manifest among the people. And the second reason is 
that they are going to connect the dots and say the Savior, as it says today, is going to be born in Bethlehem. So it is an affirmation in the sacred scriptures about where Jesus is going to be born. So when we think about this reading as a setup for Christmas, it means what does it mean when Jesus comes on Christmas? What does it mean when we celebrate Christmas? We celebrate the possibility of reconciliation and wholeness, and we become ambassadors, among other things, for peace on earth. And by golly, if there is ever a Christmas when peace on earth is necessary, it is now, not just abroad. But in this land, and you and I are to be ambassadors of that peace, that shalom of God. So Micah is a powerful introduction. I want to say some things to you about Mary, because Mary is very important, and we need to talk a little bit about how Anglican Christians uh, think about the Blessed Virgin Mary and why she's important and what we can say about it. You know, the uh, Anglican Communion has been deeply influenced. They believe that the definitive period in which all of the major beliefs of Christianity were uh, ironed out and agreed upon, for the most part, was during the first 400 years of Christian history. The four ecumenical councils was the location. And one of those councils, by the way, is the one that uh, gave us the name Theotokos, God-bearer. In any case, when we speak about the great tradition, we have some views about who Mary is, why she's important, and how Christian people are to relate to Mary. And the Anglican Communion is also a religious tradition that was deeply influenced by the Continental Reformation in the 16th century, where Mary was not uh, high on the list of priorities in terms of the theological emphases of uh, the reformers. And in fact, often they equated veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary with superstitious practices. And so they believed that it was important that we not of focus too much on the importance of Mary. You know why Mary became important first? One of the reasons was because people felt or be, the, the theology of the church had become such that people thought, gee, I simply can't relate to Jesus because he's just too... He's God. So who can I relate to? I can relate to Mary... Because he's, she's Jesus' mother. When I was in seminary, the Trinity Institute, Trinity Church Wall Street, used to have a series of uh, meetings throughout the United States or conferences every year. And I went to the Trinity Institute in Milwaukee, at the University of Milwaukee, and one of the speakers was Cardinal Sunens, who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium. And in his talk at the end, he said, when you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, a theological concept does not have a mother. 
And he used that to stress the importance of Mary as an affirmation of the incarnation, God becoming a human being, just like you and me. Do you realize that this has been such a difficult thing for people to swallow, particularly since the Protestant Reformation, that when Holman Hunt's painting of Jesus and his siblings helping Joseph in the contractor's shop that he had in Nazareth, you know, doing woodwork, the public was scandalized by this. And the art critics panned it because they believed that it was impious to show Jesus in such a human setting. So when we think about Mary, it was a great help, and leaving her out in some way doesn't complete the picture, both symbolically, spiritually, and historically and theologically. And in that sense, that is why she's important. But she's also important because the church has also held up to everybody, as one of the templates that I always talk about, her obedience. And this is particularly difficult nowadays because the term obedience is so value-laden that it's very hard to understand it. Obedience in classical moral theology is connected to the cardinal virtue of humility. And when we speak about humility, that also has a bad press nowadays. When humility really means, as Thomas Aquinas said, knowing yourself. Right? And if you know yourself, then you're obedient to the precepts you need to be in order to function and meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you. But oftentimes when we speak of obedience, people understand that as a code word for controlling dissent, thwarting our individual initiative, or something that needs to be opposed on anyone who takes their religion seriously. So that kind of obedience that we're talking about is rule-keeping, Commandment compliance, performance according to precepts, and works. So is it any wonder that obedience isn't a particularly popular thing? When I was in seminary, I was taught the old-fashioned in the, old, the spiritual life and ascetical theology that obedience has to do with being obedient to the duties of state. You've heard me say this before. What are the duties of state? Get up and brush your teeth. You know, everybody tends to either sentimentalize these things or make them so grand that you're simply not able to do that. But all, all of us are willing to be obedient to things that we think will make us richer, stronger, more attractive, more successful. We will engage in hair-raising austerities in order to do those things. So when we're talking about centering ourselves in God, we don't necessarily mean that we have to become somehow uh, loony behind some sort of obedience that is uh, not productive. Scrupulosity is the term uh, in the spiritual life that we're talking about there. Mary is an example of obedience of the cardinal virtue of humility, knowing herself and being able to be far-seeing. What would that kind of obedience be? It would be listening to the still, small voice that comes from within that you know is not your own. 
And all of us have had that kind of experience at least once in our lives where we realize that this is what was driving us. It is an important thing in terms of vocation. And when Mary had the angel visit her, she had a vocational moment and she agreed to follow God on the way and to discover what's in front of us. And all of us need to do that on a daily basis, don't we? We need to get up and say, here I am, Lord, use me. In big and small ways, this is what I'm here to do. And I wish to fulfill this vocation within the constraints of all the circumstances in which I find myself. If I know that I am necessary for the fulfillment of God's plan, and that's what Mary believed. And why she said yes. C.S. Lewis in one of his writings, said, you know, the difference between Victorian angels as they're portrayed and medieval angels as they're portrayed uh, is... Have you ever... Well, Victorian angels, C.S. Lewis would say, look like they're floating down and hovering near us and saying, they're there. Have you ever seen a painting of a medieval angel? Have you ever seen any of Fra Angelico's paintings? The angel that came down to speak to Mary had bright blue wings shot through with gold and red and orange. And he came and knelt down and spoke to her. C.S. Lewis says the medieval angels looked at like they have come down to say to each of us, Fear not! Not sentimental. One of the best sermons I ever heard in seminary was by a local priest who said, you know what? Sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. And in our religious practices, we can often get tied up in knots because of sentimentality, because of there, there as opposed to fear not. So let me say some things about how we've understood Mary in terms of the, the terminology. Let me clear up a couple of things. I do this from time to time. There are two doctrines or two, two things that people talk about. They don't use the precise terminology always. The first one is called the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. The Immaculate Conception refers to Mary being conceived in her mother's womb and without original sin. So that when she's born, she has post-baptismal grace. You, some of you are saying, is this nuts? Why are we spending all this time on this? Well, there were people who said, we got to get, we got to hash this through. And by the Middle Ages, uh, there were some doctrines that were developed around the issue of the Immaculate Conception. Many medieval theologians did not believe the Immaculate Conception was sound doctrine, and certainly Episcopalians do not hold 
the belief in the Immaculate Conception as necessary for salvation. But it's there. And it's often misused to refer to the next term I'm going to use, and that is the virginal conception. That Mary was conceived by means other than the usual means. When the kids in the uh, St. Michael's School that I taught in at St. Michael's Church, both in the uh, sixth, rather the fourth grade and the third grade, when we get to this around Christmas time and talk about Mary and everything, well, well, just exactly how, how did this happen? And I said, the Holy Spirit came down and overshadowed her. And they went, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, when you're seven, at least back then, uh, it was okay. Two years later, you couldn't have done it. Wouldn't have worked. Now, let me say why this is important. Because clearly... Uh, the fact is that both Matthew and Luke refer to the virginal conception. And I'll read to you Dr. Reginald Fuller's uh, comment about this in his commentary on the lectionary. All that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. They don't agree. The infancy narratives don't agree. And those are the only two places in the Bible where they occur. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest stratum of Christianity. And that's a fancy way of saying this belief predates the writing of the Gospels as part of the great tradition. Matthew, who was a rabbi and obviously read and spoke Hebrew, in more than one place quotes the Hebrew Bible as affirmations of the coming of Jesus and its prediction. And one of the famous locations for this is in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty One, Wonderful Counselor. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for that is used there is Alma, and it means a young woman of marriageable age. After Alexander the Great and when the temple was destroyed during the Babylonian exile and many Jews scattered and were outside of the Jerusalem precincts, they forgot how to speak and read Hebrew. And so they made a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And in this section from the book of the prophet Isaiah, where it says, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb. The word that is used there is parthenos, which means virgin. So the big $64 question with Matthew is, if he knew what it said in the Hebrew Bible, why did he at that point quote from the Septuagint?
And Luke does the same. And all that means is that there is an enormous uh, tradition that had existed before the writing of the Gospels. And it's important to know about why those two would labor to keep virgin in and not out. My own view, and this is it only that, is that the belief in the virginal conception is not essential to salvation. But there it is. You need to take some pains to say why was it kept in when it could not have been uh, just automatically in some ways. There seems to be some intention. This week, think about Virgin Mary as one of the templates, as the connection to the humanity of Jesus. Think about her obedience. Think about her courage. Think about what she said in the Magnificat. Luke puts into Mary's mouth these words. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. That sounds like a social program. Luke's gospel has more in it about justice and equity than any other gospel writer. And he puts in the mouth of the God-bearer these words, which is an indication, or going to be an indication, of what Jesus was about when he came. I'm going to beat this drum all the time, but we're right at the point where we're talking at Christmas about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. That's the first thing we normally talk about. And in a couple of months, we're going to start talking about Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And what we need to focus on are the middle bits in the Gospels. And even in these predictive texts that we're reading now, we begin to see what's going to happen, what is going to be in the middle bits, and what Christian people should concern them about, not going to heaven, but being part of bringing the values of the kingdom here. Amen.